I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Michael here. Food Talk is the show. It's our last show before the first week of January. So Merry Christmas. I always forget to say stuff like that. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's to everybody out there. Got a great show coming up. We have Patrick Cappiello in the house. Patrick, if you don't know who he is, check your pulse. If you're if you're in the food media business, if you're in the restaurant business, Patrick is... How do I describe Patrick Cappiello? He's sort of the ringleader um, for this band of hipster psalms, like a whole generation. He's like the elder statesman, which is hard to say because I don't think Patrick's much over 40 himself. But this whole generation of like young, stoked psalms, he's like the guy. To that point... Welcome, by the way, Patrick. Thank you. To that I'm, point, I'm 43 actually, so I 43? am definitely in my 40s. Oh my 40s. god, it's like so ancient. Oh I'm, my god, I'm, I'm 43. A, I'm like the center of Generation X. I, <laughs> I, I'm the furthest thing from a millennial. I probably could have birthed the millennial actually, but I do. I do like this generation. It's so cool. They're yeah. so they're so great. I keep I, I'm, my my psalm friends remind me to stop lavishing so much praise on these twenty something psalms. They keep saying, Mike, 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 you've been tasting wine. Since they've been a baby, mm-hmm. trust me. I know they're amazing. They've got these great brains, but trust your palate too. So yeah. I'm like, okay, but, but like you now, you you you've been a long time in this business, dude. So you and I have known each other because of Pearl and Ash. That's where I met you, like in person. Yeah, Pearl and Ash opened a couple of years back on the Bowery. Maybe three years in um, three years, and it was yeah. one of the great. You know that I have to read. We all read the Times on Wednesday, and we all read the reviews on actually when they come out on Tuesday night at some point around dinner. And I'll never forget the Pearl and Ash review because it was two stars. It was a great review. And the first three paragraphs were just, it was you. Yeah. I'm, and I'm like a chef. I'm like, get to the food. Get to the food. I don't care about yeah. the guy in the black flag t-shirt. Don't care. Don't care. Don't care. Get to the food. But it's like, caffiello, caffiello, wine list. And so it's, yeah. a, it's crazy because that restaurant really, I mean, there was multiple parts of its success. I think there was, you know, I mean... I mean, the food was great. Yeah. But the kitchen had some real restraints in terms of equipment, right. which you which you would never know was a diner. I only knew that because we did a show, and I went back right. and re- met Richard and saw the kitchen. Um, but from the beginning, because of your wine list that started rather rather humbly but superly well curated and then expanded exponentially over the next 12 months, yeah. it just became like... A hangout for wine lovers. Yeah, on every, not on any given night. Pretty much on every given night. Super. As you got later in the room, you'd have if there were winemakers from France or Oregon or the Finger Lakes or California, they were in the dining room. Psalms start to show up after hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, you were at Guilt. Yeah, and Veritas. Yeah, and before that, Tribeca Grill, so which is where, was, which was, was so cool to see with the 25th anniversary yeah, party. Yeah, that's I was, like, was I my did, start. That's crazy. Yeah, way back in the day with Drew yeah. and that list. 2001 was when I started there in August, actually. So I was there right before September 11th, and displaced for a bit because of it. You know, we were closed for almost a I month. Remember. Yeah, it was a, it was, a, it was a, quite an, a 
jarring way to enter the city, but you know, it was such an inspirational time to watch people like Drew and, and all these other band together to really make the best of a really bad situation. And you know, they were they were a restaurant that had the desire to make a wine program that made a difference. And David Gordon yep. uh, started with a pretty a pretty modest list, but then kept growing it. And so I was there, kind of with him, watching him do it. It was a pretty cool time, and you know, learned a lot. And then I went on to Veritas. Uh, for four years, and then uh, started at Guilt, um, which is no longer with Veritas or, or Guilt. Neither of those are with us anymore, which is sad. Too, it's New York. Too great. Yeah, it's, it's New it's, York. It's true. It's. I mean, if you can't stomach that, then head out of town, <laughs> man. It's, it's. It's. It's a tough town. It's a tough town. That's yep. the way. It's the way. And what got you into wine initially? Like, uh, so Italian last name. Which yeah, I grew up upstate. Nothing. Um, in the Finger Lakes region, well, not—I mean, Rochester, so not far from the Finger Lakes region. Didn't, wine was a part of my life because, like, my grandmother, who was from Sicily, would have like Lambrusco in the fridge, which I would like, you know, sneak tastes of when I could, you know, when I was in my early teens, you know, uh, trying to trying to get a, get a sip of, of some sort of alcohol. So it wasn't necessarily for uh, uh, being a connoisseur. And then, and then we, I, when I was in college, we would do like wine tours of the Finger Lakes. Me and my friends, we get like a limo bus, but you know, it was just. A, get drunk it wasn't to, it wasn't to learn anything so I didn't realize that even though I had it in, in my DNA and that it was I always had an interest in it but never never to a certain level and then I was working at a restaurant in Cleveland Ohio called the Baricelli Inn that had an interesting wine list of like 200 selection wine list and the chef owner was super into wine and uh, I was working as a waiter and saw that you know the guys that I was working with there were a few of them that knew how to sell wine and when they did their check average went up at the end of the night. Those were the guys who were buying the beers. You know what I mean? They were yeah. making more money. Yeah. So I was like, okay, there's something in this. If I learn more about this, I can bring my tip average up and, and then I can you know, make more money. So really it was a financial decision to get, take an interest in it. But then once I started down that path, and what year I fell this? in love with it. That was 1999. Okay. 99, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Um, I had this discussion all the time with psalms of various ages, but... My first job in New York City, 19... Well, second job. Second job in New York City, uh, 1983, was at the Maurice Restaurant. Christian Delouvrier was my chef. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I had worked at the Four Seasons for a year. And then for six months, I, I was making $186 a week. I remember my take-home pay. Wow. Six, six days a week, 186 yeah. bucks. My rent was almost 500 bucks. I had student loans, and I was going broke. So... <laughs> I had heard through the grapevine that the Maurice was looking for somebody. A couple of cooks got fired one night for stealing. So they were idiots. It was a hotel. You can't, I mean, whatever. It's, it's the business. So I had heard about this line position job at the Maurice, but I had to ask Seppi if he could switch. So I, for six months, I worked lunch at the Four Seasons, came in early, an hour early, was able to leave an hour early, got to the Maurice, of course, late because I was working two jobs. Yeah. So I'd be right off the bat trying to scramble, and I worked night on the line at the Maurice. So, you know, like, I don't know what that is, a 20-hour day or something. It's a long day. It was, that was, I don't know how I did it. I look back, I'm like, there's no Doesn't way. Doesn't sound like you got a lot of sleep. No, I didn't. And my feet were paying. My feet were actually, remember, that was like, that they hurt. Yeah. Um, Oh. But we had a guy named Roger Dagorn on the floor hmm. at the Maurice. And I just assumed, oh, it's a restaurant. They have this guy called the sommelier. He walked around with a test of van around his neck. And Roger was pretty cool. He's the One best. of the early American master yeah. psalms. He's like Yoda. And he's the same guy he is now. He's yeah, like very, still on the floor. I mean, it's amazing. He's an right. inspiration. He's inspirational, yeah. but he's, he's the most non-pretentious, down-to-earth. You'd never know who you were talking to yeah. unless you knew the hell, who the hell he was. Guy's 
unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, and he was, you know, he was at Chantra when I was at Tribeca Grill. Yes. So, like, I yes. mean, you know, in really uh, such an inspiration to so many that next generation. I mean, people don't don't realize, but they often credit like Daniel Johnson and. Um, uh, uh, Larry Stone is being, you know, kind of the first sommeliers, but Roger DeGorm is in that is in that group. It's the three of them for sure that were that were the the thing that became like the true American sommelier, and then you know they brought they inspired like Robert Bohr and Tim Kopeck and all these other guys that became that exertion. Levy Dalton, um, myself, there was a lot of guys that came out of that. Mike Madrigal, and then those guys became the, the new leaders of of the charge. Yeah. Um, you know, as all these other guys retired, like Jean Luc Ledoux and other guys, as they kind of went another direction, and then it was this weird middle ground where. Where, where like you know Levy and Mike and myself and it, we're, we were the ones and Robert we were the ones that kind of had to teach the next generations how to do it so it was cool because we were empowered to kind of do whatever we wanted to do and it was a time where all of a sudden wines that were not coming to New York were starting to come to New York we, we've seen now in the last 10 years the difference of stuff that's coming to the United States is it's amazing. A lot, a lot more wine, but a lot, a lot of different wine, and now a shift into a different style of wine. And there's, there's, it's, it's been an amazing thing, and it's been cool to to be part of that, you know, kind of changing of the guard. And now also for me to be, you know, I have two amazing head sommeliers, Kim Kimberly Precocian and Brim Burkheim at Tribe at. Um, Rebel and Pearl and Ash. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Respectfully, uh, you know those two. Um, I think are doing an awesome job, and now they're you know leading the next generation as, as well. So even even seeing younger and younger people, you know they the, the waiters at both of my restaurants see Kim and Bryn as such an inspiration, and they they commit their time. They come in on their off time to work in the wine cellar and to learn from them because they see what a cool position it is, and and also like how, how much they've been able to succeed at it. So it's. Feels really good. It's starting to make me feel a little old. <laughs> <laughs> At forty-two, no, it's true. So forty-three, but yeah. so it's but so. My point, which I never got to, is this is typical of me to get long-winded. But throughout the nineties. If you even look at the great restaurants in New York, okay, so Daniel Hannes was at, was at Montrachet, um, and then he went to Danielle. But if, if you could count on one hand the amount of restaurants that had sommeliers on the floor, it just was a position that didn't exist. So yeah, Roger was an anomaly, and Daniel was an anomaly, and mm-hmm. this, and it, it wasn't really until the aughts, till this century, mm-hmm. that you began to see in exactly what you were saying, in almost lockstep, an. An education of a generation of younger sommeliers who were actually, like a restaurant couldn't take itself seriously with a wine program if, if they didn't have a som or right. a beverage manager that was on the floor selling. Um, and a- absolutely at the same time, these wines that we'd never seen before. Yeah. I remember going to France. Again, my my time was the 80s and 90s. We went to France every year in Switzerland. And, and you know, you'd, just, you'd go to the wine bars, Willie's and Les Clous, and you would drink these wines. And as you traveled France, and then you'd come back to New York, and they did not exist. They were not being sold. I mean, we grew up, I can't complain, we grew up drinking champagne, Bordeaux, and Burgundy. Yeah. Um, that's what all great Me restaurants. Too. Yeah, that was, that, was, it. that was all restaurants really had. Right. Rhone, a little bit of Rhone wine, but really those were the categories that mattered most. Yeah, and because that was the Four Seasons, they were kind of pioneers of California, so yeah. they would have barrel tasting. So I, I got to taste, you know, good California cabs and Bordeaux styles, which was what California was doing then. But now it's just remarkable because we're like it's almost like an embarrassment of riches. This mm. town and towns like Chicago and Las Vegas and San Francisco, where there's just amazing. I mean, you know, you must have friends coming from France saying. How do you have that wine? I can't get this wine in France. And it's yeah. here. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's the benefit of being in New York, especially right now. But I think it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, 
It's amazing. It's it's so cool to see. I mean, you like the expanse of distributors and importers that are here in the city now. It's 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 really hard to keep up. Like I know I I remember speaking to Paul Greco about it at some point. You know, early early on when I started at at Guilt, I'm like. I know how do you just juggle it all? There's just so many. He's like, you know what, Patrick? I meet with like 80 people a month. It's like, and like he, meet, he would meet with everybody, and I'm like, Paul, that's like a little. I mean, that's a lot aggressive. Of time. Yeah, I mean, it's, so people people think that all we do is just swirl glasses and sit around and taste wine, but there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of particular effort that has to go into making sure that you're bringing in the right wines that make sense for your guests. And you know what? Every vintage things change, and you know, regions evolve, and to just to think that it's as easy as you know, looking at a book and pointing and order calling, you know, picking up a telephone right. and calling and then going to lunch. It's like not. It's no it's, way. It's a it's a pretty it's a it's a it's an effort for sure. And as more and more places make wine, I mean, they make wine in China now. You know what I mean? It's like uh, so I'm told every every one of the fifty states makes makes wine. It's 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 not and and the, and places that were. I mean, we we talk about like I mean, it's it's a Loire Valley is a great example of a place that for a long time it's where they grew wheat and corn in France. It was they had big chateaus. The wine, a lot of the wine they were making was shit. This yeah. overcropped, chapitalized garbage. Mm-hmm. Nobody was paying attention. Bistro wines. Bistro wine. Yeah. And they were just, they were terrible. And, and I mean, like, I mean, Anjou is a perfect example. Like, 15 years ago, that was undrinkable. And then there's a new generation of vignerons came in, mm-hmm. began to look at what they had, respect the ter- soil and terroir, and suddenly the Loire, you know. It's, it's yeah, a, it's, now become, it's now become some of the most allocated wines that, you yeah. know, we hunt for come yeah. from the Loire Valley, which if you would have told somebody 10 years ago that that was the direction things were going in, joke. they would think that you were nuts. They would say you're completely out of your mind. There's no chance. And at the same time, I think, and this is also sort of because of the Loire and because of Alsace and because of other, you know, Italy and Spain and Portugal, Germany. Um, because of that, there's been this kind of diminution. I've been saying this for a long time. The wines that I, I mean, Burgundy's still a gold standard, but it's so bloody expensive and it's so hard to get. And I can't, I mean, I'm not drinking much premier crew. I mean, yeah. three, three, four, five hundred dollars a bottle. It's not, it's not, not, not. And it's a small, super region. small region. And so, uh, so at this point, anything that has, that, that uh, hasn't been discovered in a lot of ways has so so the you know the wines are fantastic from Burgundy but yeah. it's it's very it's very you know condensed down to a very small slice of land yeah. and within the realm of that so many producers that have become famous have even in vineyards that weren't famous have now t- taken over that area so and you know the effect of the Asian market and their interest in those wines in yep. particular have driven it up so yeah I mean there's. There, there's the Maconay, like Coach Chalonet stuff down south where you can still find some pretty cool stuff that's happening. That, But for the most part, the heart of Burgundy in some ways has become um, a rich man's region. Exclusively. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's definitely like heartbreaking in some ways. But these, weren't, these aren't guys that were setting it up that way. It wasn't their desire to make their wines like this rare. And this. It's just the fact that they don't, you know. They don't. They don't have access right. to any more vines. Correct, and the cost of land there is yeah, insane. It's, yeah, it's like, so it just just dictates the price. I mean, same thing in a way with what happens in California is the cost of land versus Sud de France versus Loire Valley yeah. versus Beaujolais. I mean, so we go south of Macon and you're in Beaujolais, which is a place that's just turned itself around. It's I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, Those wines cost twice what they did ten years ago. Yeah, and they're still. I mean, now they right now it's. I used to be able to buy Beaujolais Cruz in the high teens, low twenties, and yeah. now it's north of thirty. It's amazing. Pushing towards forty, and I'm still thinking well, there's still value there, but it's like. Put on the brakes, and another, and, and you know, another place we've talked about this before. That, I mean, my when I think of what we used to taste as young chefs, because we you know we taste a lot of wine with the psalms or, or the servers, and anything that was left in the bottle would come back to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. We would get to sneak stuff because you know that's what cooks do. Um, but I grew up sort of with the architecture of Champagne, Burgundy, and Bordeaux, and I, I always loved Bordeaux. Always loved the right. layers. Always loved, and I used to use the term architecture because it, it is blended wines, and you've got three or four or five. Well, two or three great varietals, sometimes four. Um, but there is like a 
beginning, middle, the super long finish. There's a, a kind of build through when you're tasting it. And, I, you know, I would go to restaurants now that all these other regions are so popular and they're like, where's the Bordeaux? Where's the Bordeaux? Yeah. For, and almost to what you said, part of it was the, the first growths were so expensive and right. they were concentrating on the Asian markets and kind mm-hmm. of like FUing America. Um, but, but you and I were just there. We were, September. yeah, that's where we And were. I have to say, I, I cracked up because we flew in from New York to Paris, Paris to Bordeaux, deplaned, got to our hotel. My strategy day one is always keep moving. I don't, I'm not a good nap. I don't take naps. So just keep moving, keep moving, go outside. Smart. <laughs> nice day. Just chunk, do an early dinner, pass out, and you're great on day two. Um, so I check into the hotel, and I'm getting ready to take my first walk of the day, and the elevator opens, and I see this wrangly, uh, uh, clearly a bunch of like young Americans with the shit in their hair, and, this, <laughs> and there's this guy bent over, this gangly guy with a full sleeve tattoo, and I'm like, no fucking way. <laughs> Capiello's here in this hotel? No way. So I, I don't say anything. You guys are all checking in. That takes time, and you probably want to get to your rooms and the shower, and, and uh, you're staying in the hotel, I'll see you, which, of course, we did on We did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of like clock work you'd yeah. be going out i'd be having my cigar and yeah, five ounce pour of something in a, out. Yeah. <laughs> on the street in a glass with my cameraman and you'd be with your ragtag crew of like 20 something psalms yeah. going to flacon on a nightly basis yeah to just drink that was an incredible little Still wine hungover from that trip <laughs> yeah i mean it's you know it was it was an idea that myself and mary gorman um who's a, um, a master of wine came up with we were talking about um, ways that we could help uh, young people discover Bordeaux because it's an area that maybe is undiscovered on this new generation of Psalms. Yep. And it's an area that I love. I mean, I, I, it's been an important part of my the wine programs that I've done and the wine programs that I've been involved in as far back as Veritas. I mean, Veritas had a huge Bordeaux list. So Insane. I was kind of raised on these wines in, in a way. And a lot of the wines at, at, in that scenario were more more like of the classified growths. But um, I slowly began to learn more and more about, you know, Kind of the uh, I like to call it the outer boroughs of of you know of, of Bordeaux and stuff on the right bank and in like more affordable family run chateaus and I think as as a sommelier you're always trying to make sure that you have your finger on the pulse of what's coming next as far as a region goes and I think as we've seen the Loire Valley become you know inflated and now and now you know really an area for hard to find wines. You have to think about what the next area is, and for sure, people are talking about areas like Savoie, and there are only a few other undiscovered areas in in in, in France. But for me, my thought has always been, you know, that that there's people. Bordeaux is a mystery to most people. It's 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 unlocked by by the elite and the rich because they discovered the five wines that people said that they should have these big five four first growths. But as a result, the region never had good representation in the U.S. of smaller family run domains, and there's tons. Tons of people that are working with less than 10 hectares, plenty of people that are working with organic and biodynamic um, uh, techniques, plenty of new young winemakers that are moving to the region because there's affordable land to be found and and obviously great terroir. So it's 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 the thing that, I, that I've always thought was kind of, I think, is, is, is a region that's already, obviously already established, but this side of Bordeaux. I think is going to become more and more a topic of conversation for sommeliers. And, you know, so we came up with the idea of doing this trip and the the requirements were for the trip that um, it had to be a sommelier that was 
that had never been to Bordeaux before. So all those, it, it, so they were all young. All young. So, so yeah. I mean, like, what was the top? I mean, they were ranging from like early 20s to maybe 30? Yeah. My, my, I think maybe at the highest level, one of them was 30. Yeah, it was crazy. And they were so stoked. I mean, it was so fun to talk to these yeah. kids because I remember coming home and just telling everyone I knew, you know, I, I live in Cape May, so I'm kind of like a, a, a shitty bird watcher, but I love birding. I mean, birds, it's like one of the greatest birding places on planet Earth. And so if you don't buy binoculars and make an attempt, you're an idiot. They just, they're <laughs> passing over it. Just got to go on your back porch and look. Look up, dude. Just shut up. So I bird, and it was my. So it's like it's like discovering a new species. Yeah. And species is these twenty four year olds that are like fucking encyclopedically knowledgeable about wine. That girl that works for for June for Mark. Yeah. Redhead, I forget yeah. her name. Aaron, Aaron Healy, Co- yeah. Complete firebrand. She's mm-hmm. hysterical, tall, thin, smart, good looking, and she could just rattle shit off. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! How old are you? I'm twenty four. <laughs> like, when did you start drinking? At like two? Like, how do you know? And then her school, her parents. I think her parents were in the military, and she traveled. Yeah. And she at one point she went to college in Scotland. Yeah. And they didn't have sororities or fraternities. So she joined like a club and the club was the wine club. And because it's Europe, she got to take the train and get the and I think she talked her way into like Bergen. And and she, this kid just like self no, yeah. not so much self taught. I'm sure she's educated as could be, but she's just like a whiz kid. And they were all like that. They were all yeah, all of them. Yeah, yeah well, I mean the, that was the idea. We wanted to Mel- select Yeah, yeah, Anthony, so great. I we I mean we wanted to select people who who we felt were were gonna be like uh, ne- the next generation of kind of you know influencers yeah without yeah. a doubt but yeah. also I wanted Buyers. people that were open minded right. and most of them don't even buy wine for the programs that they that they work for like my sommelier Melissa Morfitt joined the trip as well um, Anthony Kalen who is, who's, uh, works at uh, Bestia as a part time som and then also at Domain LA which is a great wine store in LA um, so these were we looked at them as being young people who who we knew eventually would, would be the people that, that, that were you know kind of affecting customers but at this point we just wanted people who had open minds and like for me it was affirmation too like Mary and I were both like you know we're not I don't think we're we're the only people that feel this way and you know what let's test let's test our our commitment to this region by bringing some people who have no knowledge and no experience of it and see what they think and if you talk to them now I mean they there was it was an it was oh, an experience that is the, that will they will yeah. never forget yeah it was because yeah. I think that that's what I've been saying for years I think that Bordeaux as a region lost a generation at least of wine drinkers and songs in America 100%. And maybe a generation and a half 100%. because it was the emphasis was on the first growth there's only a few of them the pricing was outrageous and you know okay would, would do we really give a shit anymore about the 1855 classifications and then the the you know what, what they didn't send in a meal a hundred years later I mean let's talk about drinking table wines yeah and and they've got soil and they've got climate and mm-hmm. so let's let's you brought the couple today talk about let's pour yeah let's yeah pour. okay so um well i'll bring first one i'm gonna pour for you is um uh here we go i'm not gonna cross <laughs> yeah it's hard to pour the, and it's, i know you can't see this on the radio but this has this has a screw cap on it right you can yes. not you can attest yes. to that as well so um, Rio is. Uh, oh, I'm gonna pour that in your water glass. That would have been that would have been a terrible idea. <laughs> it would have been a really bad idea. Taste, uh, tasting notes, it's thin. All, so basically, all, all all these wines that I brought are are for me like examples of next generation. Whether whether they're already um, traditional chateaus that are being taken over by a ne- the next generation, or whether they're um, actual people that are like brand new to the region but but next generation. So this is um, Chateau Brio, which is which is again a, a guy that's a pretty young guy. Um, Jeremy Ducourt is the is the is the, the kid who's running the the uh, the estate now. Um, he's a, a, a several generation old old uh, family of who's been running wines there. But Jeremy is focused on producing um, 
wines that have less of a carbon footprint on the on the on the uh, the environment. So obviously, the screw cap is one way that he's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's working with organic um, vineyard management, so uh, not using any chemicals or pesticides in the vineyard. Which for in Bordeaux for a long time was not a discussion that they would often often have. But this is dominated by Cabernet. It's primarily Cabernet Sauvignon, um, a, l- a little bit of Merlot, and a little bit of Cabernet Franc. So traditional blend, but but more heavily dominated by Cabernet, which you'd see more on the left bank. Correct. Is he? Is it left bank or right bank? It's right bank. On the left bank, you see more Cabernet. On That's the right. right. On the left right bank, bank you see more soil type more tends to be more yeah, gravelly. It's where, it's where you find like like Saint Julien and Poyac, where all the first grapes are all, all, all on the left yep. bank. Yep. And on the right bank, you're going to see more of the Merlot. Down. We're going to have a, a couple of right bank exam, example as well. But and there's more clay in the soil typically yeah, in the right bank. Exactly. And Merlot favors that. But so this wine for me is just, I think it's like it's it's you know super affordable. It's a twelve dollar bottle of wine, which I think is like a, a pretty twelve dollars. <laughs> and no it's like shit. Yeah. And it's really, really delicious. And, and I mean, really drinkable, like like quaffable, juicy, juicy absolutely, super ripe, super fruit forward. Yeah, it's tannins. Like, I mean, if it's if I'm, if I'm so it's got that much cab in the tannins are just yeah. like soft tannins. So super soft he's tannins. De- he's definitely focused on creating wines that are ready to drink. I mean, for this is a wine from a 2012 vintage, so a pretty young wine. But really, you know, the idea here is is like you said, it's 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 drinkable wines, and you know, I think that he really re- represents, especially the fact that he's trying to. To focus on working with sustainable and you know uh, organic um, vineyard management is really a key thing because in Bordeaux for a long time most of the Bordelais would tell you that they just couldn't do it. It was just too moist <laughs> of a. It's just too much. There's too much rain. It's 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 no. Too every difficult. excuse in the book. I've been there over the years yeah. a million times, and it's just like yeah, it was always no, no, no. Can't do it. Impossible. Here it'll never happen. And, and the answer is really has anyone tried? It's changed. It's changed. Yeah, and I, and I mean I think that there's more and more. I mean there's 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 biodynamic certified um, producers when our our last trip, we went and visited like uh, Chateau Le Puy, which is an unbelievable. It's a vineyard actually that has never been touched with chemicals. They've never used chemicals for their entire history. A very special place, and they they are biodynamically certified. They use no sulfur in the winemaking. So all these things that usually, when you refer to, you're talking about a wine from like the Jura or a wine from the Loire Valley. It's exists. It exists in Bordeaux as well. So just a you know, often people I think don't don't recognize that as being a part of the part of the region, but. Delicious wine, man. Thanks. So this is around. I can get this in New York at a bunch of stores. Yeah, it's it's the production's fairly big on it. He's been in with, for, for him to be able to do that and produce that style of wine with that with that big of a production. That's pretty. It's for me. It's pretty impressive. So the next wine that I'm going to pour for you is um, Trocard, and this is this kid's 24 years old. Yeah, and it is a 15th generation winemaker. So uh, it's a pretty old school um, production. As far as you know, the mentality behind it goes, but he's definitely got a younger, a younger approach on it. So I'm going to pour myself some here, and this is more more dominated by Merlot. So it's Bordeaux Superior. Um, it's like sixty percent Merlot, um, uh, or no, sorry, seventy percent Merlot, fifteen Cabernet Franc, and fifteen Cabernet Sauvignon. And a year in oak? What's he do? What, what? Yeah, but it's not. It's not, there's, there's, not, there's no, no new oak. No it's, new all, oak. it's all going to be like oh, first and second and third, and third year barrels. And yeah, the wine will sit wine will sit there for a year before before bottling. And this is 2010 vintage, so you know they, they like often was the case with with Bordeaux grape vintages like 2010, 2009 are still available in the market. Um, and 17 bucks is how much this this bottle costs. So for me, it's another under 20. That's a great a great. That's value. not you know you're just right. I mean you don't think and I must say I, as a creature of habit, I, I drink wine every night with dinner and shop some of the you know we're, we're lucky in New York Chambers and Flatiron and of course down by me there's Aster which is huge. 
Um, and I just find myself going, you know, going to Loire, going to Northern Italy, doing the same places. And I, I've, I've got to go look at the Bordeaux. I mean, it's crazy. I, I, I never really thought you could you could get juice this good at these prices anymore I mean, in the, the States. But that, and that's the reason remember why. remember when we were kids, when I was a kid, Patrick, the, the first growths. It was it. <laughs> they, and they were but not they were expensive. 20 bucks. Yeah, when you look at the wine yeah. list of La Cote Bosque and yeah. the Maurice from the 80s, you were drinking for, in, re, in restaurants with a markup. They were $40, $50, $60 a bottle maximum. I was, I was, was crazy. At, I was at lunch yesterday at, at Harry's Cafe and Steak, Harry Polkakis, who's a good friend of mine. Yep. And Harry sat with me and um, the guys that was there. Was there were some California winemakers who had never been there before, and I wanted to show them kind of one of my favorite New York places. Old school. And he was telling us stories of you know buying these cases of wine from the '60s, Bordeaux from the '60s, all first growth and second growth for like $120 a case. <laughs> right. And I mean the, cor- the corks box. cost more than that right. now. It's like you can't. Yeah. So and it, you know he he was like so such an amazing guy. He has and has one of the best collections of Bordeaux. I mean. You know, after we, we we had had a few bottles of champagne, we had, we had some Burgundy, we had some Italian wine, and then Harry like went like whispered off to his waiter, and his waiter comes back with a bottle of 1983 Chateau Latour for us to to enjoy. And he told me how he, he paid thirty dollars for the bottle when he bought it on release, and I was like, oh my god, that's yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. So so we were we had access even as a young chef making young chefs' wages. I could buy a case of wine. Back then, and pay you know eighteen to twenty two dollars for first growths that were just stunning, that were good vintages. And those, but those are the stories that we will tell about all these wines at some point. You know what I mean? It's right, we're that, already talking about Beaujolais now. We can't. Afford but, it. but I mean, it's it's it, it'll be the same story. You know, as it's been with Loire and Beaujolais, as it'll be with the Savoie, as it'll be with you know um, the, the outer boroughs of, of Bordeaux. I think you'll see all of these areas in ten years. You'll be like, oh, I remember when I was a kid, and you know. So that's why it's always. That's why there's a, what people want to know what the new, new new region you know to note is. But the thing about Bordeaux is it's not like a fly by night region. It's a region that's proven his, its ability to age, to be great when it's young, you know. And at some point, even with the most regal wines, be a great value. But there's still plenty of this stuff. So I want to for you one more. One more. Um, and this is uh, one of, really one of my favorites, uh, Chateau Chateau Robin or Robin, uh, which is a. A, a, a winery. It's a chateau that's run by a guy actually who's not yeah. from Bordeaux. He's he's he's, he's the example of that, of that third thing. So if I think if you look at producers working biodynamically, younger producers getting involved, and then a next generation and a new generation of, of of people coming to Bordeaux to make wine. He used to sell cars in like um, somewhere some one of the tropical islands of France, like the like the, this area. This area is where where you know they everyone goes to like retire or, right where they make rum and shit like that. Yes, yeah. he was he he lived there and he, he his his wife's family is from Bordeaux. Didn't um, own chateaus; they just were from the area. And he came to visit, and he like completely just fell in love with Bordeaux as a region, and all, in particular in Castillon, which is where he makes the wines. Cote Castillon, yeah. So we're so he, right back again on the fringes of the right bank. Right, exactly. That's the border. Yes, and it's really a magical area. It's a pretty hilly area, yeah. actually. Compared, most of Bordeaux can be pretty flat, but in, in Castillon, it's, there's a fair amount of hills, like Fransac, Castillon. It, yeah, it's 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 a more it's in, it produces wines that have a little bit more of that intense like hillside structure. But so he um, he fell in love with the region, and he sold his automotive company and bought this chateau and now he and he and you go there like he works like Jerome is there he does he does pretty much everything on his own and it's it's a, it's a small production like you know I think, it's under, under, I think it's under 10 hectares the property which is very small production and he does every, every almost everything himself I think he under has under 10 yeah under 10 that's yeah. tiny which is t- it's tiny it's <laughs> yeah. tiny but 
but the wines have a good representation here in the U.S. and you can you can actually um, acquire them, which is great. Really, it, signature Bordeaux. Yeah, what's it's, the blend it's on this? Super classic. This, is, it's, this actually does. This, it's, this is a, of, of the three. This is one in a blind tasting. I'd be right. okay. First two, I'm not so sure where yeah. I'm going. The, this one, I'm like Bordeaux. Yeah, done. The first two are a little brighter and fresher, but this is definitely a little a little more rich in style. Uh, it's 60 percent Malo, 30 percent Cabernet Franc, so the highest level of wow. Cabernet Franc, and then 10 percent Cabernet Sauvignon. And so this is the most expensive bottle at 21 bucks. Fuck. And that's when crazy. we visited, I mean, that's my price range. So I'm down thrilled. <laughs> Twenty one dollars. I mean, yeah. that's like my sweet spot. Like I'll go like twenty to thirty is kind of where I shop. Well, we visited him on this last trip, and when we did, he I didn't know. I mean, I, I'd met him. I I'd met him a few times. Mm. He's, he's, his, his wine is imported by a friend of mine, um, Daniel Jonas, who we spoke about before, and that's how I wanted meeting him. When I was in Bordeaux, I was like, Daniel, I want to go meet. I want to go kind of get in touch with what's happening in Bordeaux. So I went on my own and visited him and had an afternoon with him that was like unbelievable. So it I was wanted during the crush. I was yeah, it was during the crush when we were there. Was he harvesting or was he done harvesting? He was done harvesting. He was okay. done, this, is, this is an earlier trip that I oh, was sorry. there. And okay, I visited sorry. him and I just was like, wow, this guy is so great. He's such a dynamic personality, really intense. and yeah, Delicious, delicious, delicious. So I wanted to bring these guys back to meet him. And when we got there, he had he had a vertical of every vintage that the Chateau had ever produced. He inverted a very small library of wines, but back to the 80s. And he opened all these wines for us. It was like 25 vintages of wines. And there was only six of us. And it was just an amazing. He made us dinner and you know, we just hung out in his house. It was like, it was a really, it was, it was, a, it was a special night. And it you know, it was one of those nights that always felt that f- feels like me to nights that experiences that I had going to like a small shop, a small domain in Burgundy or in in Loire or something like that. It wasn't always what you assume with like you know regal, uh, all the finest china and silver at the chateau at the chateau in Bordeaux. You try it was not way to go more the front door of Chateau Margaux and they tell you talk to our <laughs> distributor in Paris. Sorry, go fuck yourself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but the, the, my impression of Bordeaux every time I went there, and I must say. I, I, the last time I was in Bordeaux proper was the 90s, and the city was gray and dreary and disgusting, and you couldn't wait to leave it. And I went there this time, and I'm like, what the F happened to this it's place? It's a beautiful city. It is gorgeous. It's yeah. scrub clean. The waterfront's gorgeous. Uh, that uh, new trolley service is amazing. It's full of energy. I mean, honestly, for me, a lot of France, I hate to say this to my French friends, a lot of France, to me, smells like decaying. It's like like I go to Montpellier, and it's sad. And I go to places that just is, for a lot of reasons, the economy, youth unemployment. And you go to Bordeaux, and it's like the economy's growing. They're going to have that. TGV link to Paris any day now. Yeah. It, it's it's like alive. It's vibrant. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Um, but but my, my my joke about the left bank was it's just reminding me of like um, as if as if as if. If if they were growing wine in like Greenwich, Connecticut, or New Canaan, or Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, to be the same way, yeah, it's just this old money and ascots and intermarried families that control everything that really don't give a flying because they've just got so much money. But this is the other Bordeaux we're talking yeah. about, which is the great story. Yeah, congratulations on your um, second restaurant opening this year, Rebel. Great opening, great review. Michelin star. I don't know how you pulled that off because we opened like two days before the book came out. Uh, they, he must have gone to friends and family. That's my guess. Um, no, it's huge. And then you want everybody's top, like a lot of top ten lists that are coming out this week. Mm-hmm. Just great to see. Great, super energetic place. It's been great, a, it's insane been a great wine year. list. Yeah, 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 it's been a great year for yeah. you. Great we've, run. We've, we've had a lot of fun, and, and we feel like super honored to have gotten the support of not just. Um, the you know the critics of the city but also the clients because really those are the ones that matter more because the critics come and go quick but the clients are the ones that stay forever so we're super we feel super happy i mean pearl and ash is almost three years and you know we got we won a grand award from my spectator this year so it's it's been it's been amazing like for me as a kid who just grew up in like you know lower middle class like upstate new york like uh, the idea of being like a restaurant owner in new york city it's pretty <laughs> fucking amazing like I, I wake up in the morning every day and like just scratch my head and wonder how i got and your girlfriend's on top chef 
My girlfriend, yeah, she is. She's you guys are rock stars. Come on, dude. Like, let's grab these by the throat. Let's do it. Yeah, Grayson Schmitz. She's on, uh, yeah, tonight's Thursday. Yeah, it's on tonight. No, it's so cool. Congratulations. <laughs> you're great. You're super energetic. You're a great spokesman. And like I said, you're like the Pied Piper for this generation of, like, the young hipster psalms, which is... I could, you know, as a compliment, I mean that. Thanks, yeah. You know, you're, <laughs> there's a compliment and there's something. There is, no, that's what I meant. It's great. There is, I am just, like I said, like seeing those kids with you that week in Paris and just every night after a day of tastings marching off to that wine bar. And yeah, they're all stoked and they you close the place every night at two in the morning. And I, I know that one kid's got an Instagram following of like 60 million people. Yeah. He was taking these pictures of the Magnums and whatever you were drinking that night and it was just blowing up. Crazy, yeah. It's great. It's, it's It was a fun trip. It was a fun trip. I think we're going to try and do it again this year. So any sommelier out there that have never been to Bordeaux, please get a hold send us of, a note. Yeah, send us a note. Yeah, yeah, it's right. You can get a hold of all of us. You can follow us on Twitter, yep. Instagram, Facebook, yeah. the whole goddamn social media. Please, yeah. Fiasco. Congratulations. And I'll see you on the 5th of January at Pearl and Ash for that dinner, whatever that's called. What's yes. the name of that? The Renegade Wine thing? What's, it is. what's the theme for? The, the Renegade Wine Dinner on the 5th is... A lot of France. Yes, it's the Vin de France, which is like uh, basically we, we're, we're looking at all the people who are making wine in regions where uh, they have certain laws they should follow, but they don't follow them. So they're kind of like the they're they're going against the grain. I'm looking forward to it. Looking Probably forward to the next time you. I see you. I'll be there. Patrick Capiello, follow him on Facebook. Follow all of us on Facebook. Yeah. Instagram, Twitter, we're all there somewhere. That's right. Patrick's case will be much more interesting than mine, but he's a rock star. <laughs> thanks for coming in today. Mike, thanks for rainy, horrible, bloody. I can't believe it's Christmas next week and it feels like late June. It's, a, it's an amazing time it's in New nuts. York. Folks, stay tuned. I've got a great story coming up. The owners of Faro Restaurant, um, one subway stop from here, further out in Bushwick. Incredible story. I love this restaurant. Husband and wife team. That's what's coming up next. And we got a spot here that a couple of the people that support this show. So listen to them. And we'll see you back on this side in about three minutes. Stay tuned. Echo here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails 
Naples from. Since then, their families moved here. So there's Colavita's living in Rome. Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. So if you listen to the show, you know I am a wine lover. We get sommeliers here all the time. We get winemakers. I've been drinking wine with dinner since before most of you were born. And when you think of the great wine regions of the world, I mean, what comes to mind? Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Piedmont? Yeah, okay. Well, I just got back from Bordeaux. was there for the crush for the 2015 harvest, and I was thrilled to see, A, how the city of Bordeaux has transformed itself. It's so alive. It's so beautiful. And the region itself is crazy. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons where coming in, and they're not making your grandfather's Bordeaux anymore. Young farmers, young vignerons that have been there for generations, that know the soil, that know the grapes, and what grapes are we talking about? Mm, you know, we're pretty familiar here. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, all of those grapes find themselves in these blends. But the new style of Bordeaux wines are super fresh, super young, super clean, meant to be consumed now, not cellared for decades, because really, who has a cellar? The whites are super great. I think they're super undervalued and appreciated. Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc, crisp, dry, all stainless. If there's a little oak integration, you barely feel it. And the reds come in all sorts of styles. You know, the left bank is a little more Cabernet Sauvignon heavy, a little more structured, a little more tannic. The right bank with more Merlot tends to be fruity, a little more opened up, receives you a little bit easier. But if you've been walking past that Bordeaux aisle in your wine store, stop and grab a bottle. From $15 to $35 is some of the best value on planet Earth with wines that are growing in one of the great wine regions, vignerons that are passionate, they know what they're doing. Give Bordeaux a second shot. I love the wines. Hey, folks, welcome back. Mike Kalameko here. Um, again, one last time, because I, f- I forgot to wish everybody happy Thanksgiving, because I'm, I'm always forgetting what week it is. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We take two weeks off Heritage, so this will be the last show until the first week of January. Um, so enjoy the holidays. It's weird. It's In New York, it's like 60 degrees today, really cloudy, really rainy, and it feels like June. Strange weather. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to eat at the restaurant that I'd heard about. Um, that had just opened this year called Faro, F-A-R-O, like the Italian grain. Um, and I'd heard really good things. I mean, they were getting some buzz. I don't know exactly if it was like PR stuff. You never can tell in New York how this stuff works. But I kept hearing from friends of mine whom, who I trusted that you got to go out and try this place. And I'm like, where is it? And they're like, Bushwick. And I'm like, I live in the Lower East Side. You know, fucking Bushwick. I do a radio show at Roberta's, man. I'm Bushwick, right? Like, I'm an old guy. They don't like me out there. But I do have a metro card, and the subway is literally 100 yards from the front door of the restaurant, the Jefferson stop of the L train. So what I did is one day after this show, because I'm already in Brooklyn, right? I'm already in Bushwick, and I could walk over to the restaurant. I did. And I walked, I'd say it was 15 minutes from here, and the last stretch of block, I walked with my son. The last stretch of block that we walk, I mean, one of the most amazing things about Bushwick is, like, this This is a neighborhood that's, 
<laughs> never saw itself coming to what it is now. Um, post-industrial, maybe, is a way to describe it. Um, the word charming and Bushwick probably don't exist too much in the same sentence. This isn't the West Village. This isn't Gramercy Park. Um, and this stretch of block was just really bleak and really desolate. I mean, my son said to me, who was my dinner companion that night, this would be like a great place to murder somebody or get rid of a body, Dad. And I said, yeah, that's two of a lot of... So we walked in, and, and the restaurant... It was this great open space, open kitchen in the back. Uh, is it a wood-fired stove you have? It is. Husband-wife team, Kevin and Debbie. And how were you doing last names? You want to introduce yourselves? Um, hi, my name is Debbie Aidy. And I'm Kevin Aidy. Kevin Aidy. Husband-wife team. Love. First of all, I just love that. I love restaurants where the chef... With, with there's, where the ownership has got skin in the game. They're in the house. It's like a big thing for me because it makes such a difference to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I walk in, and it's like this space that used to be a storage space for the Metro Museum of Modern Art. It was. It was uh, basically just filled with boxes. Uh, open warehouse full of boxes. There was about a two foot pathway down the middle. And when we, the, every time we saw it, that's what it looked like just boxes stacked to the ceiling, little glimpses here and there of things we like to see. Uh, but it was, a, it was a rectangle. And it was nothing was above it. And those were the big things. Just a big square open box. Big so square we, open once box. they took their shit out, you can do what you want, and you did. So hoods in the back, <laughs> open kitchen. Uh, but the the thing, and this is like crazy because I just I just came from there's a pop up bread bakery on this street, two hundred one Moore Street called the Pop-Up Bread Bakery, I think. This kid from Philadelphia who used to work for Vetri, who's going to open up a, a hotel in Williamsburg that's slated to open this spring. And he's bringing in grains from all around the country. He's got, got a bread that's from, from Lancaster, PA, is the grain that came from. Um, there's a pizzeria in the East Village, Bruno, that's doing this now, grinding their own grains. But you were one of the first guys I've heard of doing this. So talk a bit about what you do at the restaurant, because that's kind of like a signature thing. You're bringing in whole grain, and you're grinding it in-house. We are. We're, who, who else had done this before? There weren't very many people I had ever heard of. I've never it. heard of it, so when I kind of listened and I've been around. When he mentioned it, I was like, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was one of those things where we, from building a restaurant totally from scratch and putting everything we wanted exactly where we wanted it, including plumbing and lighting and heating and everything, uh, we didn't really leave room for a big stand mixer. Um, and in a place where you're doing a lot of bread, um, that's kind of important. So that kind of went out the window, and basically I said to myself, if I can't make a lot of bread, I better make what I can make really good. And I've never worked as a baker. Um, I've never worked in a place that had more than three pastas on the menu. Uh, I've been making pasta my whole life. I enjoy it. I love it. Uh, but when it came down to it, we didn't have the room for the big mixer. So I was like, well, let's let's try milling the grain, you know. And we got a little a little mill, and instantaneously it was like, why is everybody not doing this? It is night and day difference between uh, milling corn yourself and even getting corn shipped from a really big, you know, mill it. You know, this week kind of mill right, like Anson or one of the Geechee yeah. mm-hmm. or whatever those guys are. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I buy yep. retail, and it makes sense because we've become like a coffee obsessed culture, and the idea of grinding beans. Before, I mean, it's kind of like all of this is like, yeah, but nobody had done it really before. So that was the concept going in, huh? That that would be that would kind of drive the bread program. It would drive the pasta program. Correct. Yes. The, getting. 
you know, I, I've been dealing with local farms and farmers for the last five years or so, six years now, um, for meats, vegetables, dairy, um, and grain was the, like the last bastion. Like it, it almost even places that are really sourcing great meat and great, uh, you know, cheeses and dairy and whatnot, they're buying AP flour. You know, it's just right. one of the things you don't even think of. Correct. Correct. Um, like, and if you're doing pizza dough, you're buying double zero. I mean, everybody, it's like acceptable. It's like, that's fine. Right. Like, no one looks askance at that. That's okay. That's yep. It's, it's completely like, oh, how could you do anything different? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of odd to be the guy who is doing something different um, because I didn't set out to be the guy who's doing something different. I just wanted to c- kind of complete the circle of everything that we're getting in, you know, you know, it's like, you know, oh, well, Tim grows the pigs and, uh, you know, Ben grows the carrots. Well, and then uh, this comes from uh, some guy I never heard of, a brown bag. In a bag. Yeah, <laughs> right. it just comes in a bag. So, you know, working with these, there's there's a lot of stuff through the NYC Grow project and um, and stuff with the farmer's markets. Um, and I, I remember walking by it one day going, oh, that was interesting. This was probably three years ago, two, three years ago. And going, that, that's interesting. Um, I wonder what I could do with that. You know, because you never think like how like, wheat as a actual ingredient. No, it like it comes, wheat itself it comes is processed. In, comes in fifty pound mm-hmm. bags that we slice open and pour into big bins and label. Exactly, that's what it is. It's like sugar or something else. It's mm-hmm. like you know, I'm not grinding my own salt. It's crazy <clears throat> until now. What until I found now. to be amazing was the mill itself is small. Not, it's small, right. and the the rate that it grinds and it was really amazing to me to see. And daily, it's, it's done, and boom. So you've got a nice chunk of the menu that's pasta, Mm -hmm. breads that are great. I mean, the the food we have was a spot on like every course. That for was it a porridge? What do you call that thing in the beginning of the menu? Uh, Yeah, the the house local grain porridge. (laughs) Look, it's a porridge, which is like a really funny term (laughs) because you don't think of like porridge and fine dining and but it was bloody freaking delicious. It was texturally amazing, just viscous and chunky and super flavorful. Um, And then, like I think one of the early courses we had because of your pasta production, you have an excess of egg white. Because mm-hmm. uh, the yolks are make go go some pastas are more yolk intensive, <clears throat> so you have this thing with the vegetables, and you served as some kind of I don't know, it wasn't a delicata, some kind of like local New York heirloom squashy thing, mm-hmm. but it was baked in an egg white crust, and I remember my son got it, and just like like he's a regular guy, and he's not really a veggie kind of guy, like he's a twenty five year old guy, so mm-hmm. that kind of sums it up, um, and he just like stopped in his tracks, he was like. What the f, Dad? My my girlfriend would. How do you? How do you do? And he's still trying to figure out how like you did it. So talk about that because you you did a lot, a couple of other things that same way. I think we had a rutabaga later on that was in case. How do you do it? So you're making what with egg whites? We are whites, doing salt. It's egg whites, rock salt, and uh, flour, and. <laughs> So it's like a viscous kind of a slurry? It's more of a dough. A you dough. can roll it. Okay, you can you roll can it. Roll so it's that, it dries out. Okay. But you couldn't eat it. It's too salty Correct. to eat. Uh, much too salty to eat. And we're not, you know, one of our big things is not throwing stuff away. Yeah, you're you know? a chef, man. you got to make money. you got to make money. The dumpster guy's the guy you don't want to get rich. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and egg whites are a very large byproduct that, you know, even if I remember, you know, making, like, uh, macaroons, um... And it takes like six egg whites to make you know a thousand little tiny macarons. It's like you know what are you going to do with six hundred egg yolks or egg whites? <laughs> so um, I, when I was at Laverna Den, they did a whole baked fish in this egg white same crust, same kind of crust. classic. Um, 
Theirs was a little more refined, obviously. It's for it's being presented <laughs> table side, the whole nine. <laughs> Ours, we make grenades out of vegetables and throw them in a fire. That's what you call them. <laughs> it's, so funny. It's, they're really just wrapped up, tossed in, into a, a roaring fire, and then an hour later we take them out, and it's it's basically like caveman sous vide. Nothing gets in or out. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> it's no, Nothing gets in or out. Uh, it, it, But it goes even further than that. You're, you're imparting this flavor... Um, of real intense heat and the smoke, but without any char. So it's a pristine vegetable. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, that's what's the thing. So it, it arrives and it's it's cooked completely, but is colorless. Mm-hmm. You can see in no place where it, there was any exposure to any heat because it's been enrobed in this dough. And in a way, it just it almost concentrates the flavor. It was just really, I mean, I have to say, you know, I eat out for a living and I was like, yeah, man, this is fucking... <laughs> I'm not doing this at home, but this is nasty. This is why I like to go out to eat, because if I can do it at home, like, what's the point? Like, a lot of food I eat at restaurants, I'm like, yeah, I could have made that, whatever. <laughs> but this is like, I'm not doing that shit. It was great. It's good. Glad you enjoyed. I think, no. I think you and I had that conversation mm-hmm. about, you're like, how, how did you get the flavor in there? I can taste it, but there's no color. And so, yeah, it's really a great way to not only use the oven, but byproducts, and it puts out a really tasty No, it's brilliant. And, and color is kind of, I don't want to say it's a chef's shortcut, but mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of like the chef's bag of tricks that we have, mm-hmm. bacon, salt, fat, butter, heavy cream, heavy sears, pepper mills. I mean, we have this toolbox that we've used traditionally <laughs> for giving stuff flavor, and you're almost walking it back from that and just saying, no, let's buy really great stuff and use none of those tricks and let's just let the flavor shine. Yep. My biggest thing is, um, you know, you know, you know, there's a cook shortage in, in New York and, and all, uh, all a, over the place. It's a whole nother show. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> but it's, Sorry. For, it, it's, so it's really important to me that, like, there is no, you have to know how to cook to do that. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what these kids are learning with me, you know? And I really, I take a lot of pride in the fact that when it's not going to, that kid's not going to need a timer, and he's not going to need a recipe, he's going to know how to cook a squash, and he's going to know how to cook five different squashes, and he's going to know how to different, you know, different way, and uh, it's really, it's a live fire. It is an open fire, you know? <clears throat> if you don't know what you're doing... You can a lot of bad can happen. A lot of bad. I don't know if you saw. It. I don't know what they're doing. There's like a, a pizza oven out on the street outside of Roberta's down the street from here. Mm-hmm. When you walk out the front door, I don't know what they're doing with this damn thing. Speaking of live fire, it always cracks me up. But yeah, you're cooking. I mean, a lot of what you're doing comes out of that. What what do you call that oven? I'm going to say it's a pizza oven. It's a wood oven. It's a wood. It's a wood oven with a dome top, mm-hmm. and it's one fuel. There's no gas. It's just no just, gas. just wood. Just fuel. Yep. All so, wood. And when we were doing that, people were like, "Are you sure you don't want the gas?" Like, yeah, Everybody sure, tried to sell some sure. gas. Yeah, it's right. more dual money. Fuel. I mean, obviously they're selling something. It costs yeah. more money to do the dual fuel. But for us, it's one of the only pieces of cooking equipment we bought new. Um, so it's we really a lot of I guess how much stuff goes in it is really based on that. Like, man, I spent a lot of money on this. <laughs> you know, we, also, I better we didn't get... want to mess around with that oven either. Oh, let's build it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I remember looking at your kitchen. It's so funny. I'd forgotten that part of your kitchen. I remember cooking. So there's a kitchen. It's an open kitchen. There's like a little bar area. So mm-hmm. it's not entirely open, but you can see like the cooks from the shoulders or waists up. And I remember looking at the stove and just smirking because that's, that's the stoves that I cooked on. It was like a 1970s or 80s circa yeah, jade or garland. Mm-hmm. or 83 I remember the knobs, the handles. I'm like, Where the, where'd you get that, man? <laughs> Oh, I want that. that like Ohio. In Ohio. In Ohio. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yes. Like an auction or just uh, um, online? Online, I think. Online. Yeah. And they shipped it here. They did. Yeah, classical yeah. stuff. It worked. I mean, yeah, it works. They work beautifully. Yeah, yeah, Starfire. It's great. Yeah. 
<laughs> so how did you two guys meet? Restaurant business? Because this is like the restaurant couple <laughs> question I ask everybody. We did meet working in a restaurant down in Florida about... 17 years ago. No way. Yeah, wow, he, was, a he was a sous chef. and You were was, babies. We were little babies. Yes. I was a hostess food runner. And um, yeah. She hated me. I hated him. Oh, seriously? Yeah, I did, yeah. It, definitely, <laughs> it, it took some time. Uh, For him to break down that, that yeah, wall? Yeah, yeah. Just, just, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. It wasn't, wasn't really my type. Um, <laughs> but we became really good friends. And within two months of dating, we moved in together. That's, Everybody said we were nuts. But that's funny. That, you know, yeah, this is a really funny business. Okay. It is. A good friend of mine, Gabriella Gershenson, just did a piece for, I don't know, who was it for? A thrillist or something? It was about, like, chefs and dating and mm-hmm. chefs lie. Like, what, what? all the misconceptions people have about what, what it's like to be a chef. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, pretty much what everyone thinks this business is, they don't, I mean, yes. the hours, the burns, the injuries. I mean, who the hell... I was saying to Gabriella, like, like dating a chef, especially when, like, I mean, now it's a little more popular, but when I, like, in the 80s, like, we were just, like, grease monkeys, man. It was, you know, who wants to date a guy that gets off work at 1 o'clock, smells mm-hmm. like a fry later, his day off is Monday, and he does laundry. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are you doing for my birthday? Working. Christmas? Working. Thanksgiving? Really working. It's How about Valentine's? Weekends, yeah. huh? It's Valentine's. a different lifestyle. Yeah, it really is. Um, but we love it. You know, and I, I can't imagine being in the business and dating or being with somebody that's not. It's right. just, uh, yeah, yeah. It would almost be really weird. Like, because you'd come be. home and they'd be asleep. And yes. I, you, we live in like another planet, basically. We do. You have to have someone that's like super nocturnal, that doesn't like early mornings, that can stay up till three. Has mm-hmm. um, their own schedule. Yeah. Got to be able to write their own schedule because nobody can keep up with the. You don't have weekends off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that just you can't sustain it. So you're six days a week? How many days a week you're open? Seven. Seven days a you're week. You're doing seven. We are. Have you had a day off? Yep. Yes. You're, so you're able to do that. You've carved <laughs> out that space. You've got enough support in the kitchen. You've got a sous or a chef de cuisine that you yeah, can... Yeah, we, we have the best kitchen staff in Brooklyn. Everybody is a, is a hammer. And you and you walk to work, you told me? We yep. do, yeah. We're so about... you'll live your neighbors. You'll live in that yes. charming, cobblestone, free-lined... <laughs> Sort of not actually none <laughs> kind of the of above. Not really, we actually close got a, a pretty good deal in Bushwick. We moved in the neighborhood a long time ago. Um, Which means, give me like in dog years. What's a long time ago? Six years. Uh, yeah, about six years ago. Out there, so Out on there, the Jefferson yeah. stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so what us, drove you there? I'm just curious. I mean, clearly Williamsburg was on fire, and as Williamsburg caught fire, you kind of, like in in New York, you kind of push like okay. What's the next Williamsburg? What's mm-hmm. it going to be? And if, if the L train runs in that direction, maybe we can go to Morgan or Jefferson, a couple of stops further out. But is that kind of what drove you guys out here? The idea that it was kind of like a pioneering thing then? Not really. Um, it, for me, you know, I took a job at the, basically at the only restaurant in uh, Bushwick at the time, and it was a built-in audience. You know, and I was like pretty much my first New York City chef job. Uh, and the hardest part about running, you know, places getting people to come. And if there's no other choice, you're 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 half the battle. So now it's are you good enough? You know, are you good enough to to, to maintain this, keep it keep it running? And um, you know, it was it was, it was a great. I'm also from a small town, uh, and it was very very small town America in Bushwick at the time. You know, everybody knew everyone. Um, you know, regulars. It, I you know I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but like 
people as a chef, you know, people come. People are regulars, but you don't see them every day. At this job, you saw them every day, twice a day. Right. And people would introduce themselves to me, and I'd go, "Hey, bud," because I was never going to see. I, you know, in my in my head, I'm never going to see him again. And then they, I'd see him like four hours later, and then twelve hours later, and then four hours after that. And then like it got to the point where I would be friends with these people. Like friends with people, I had no idea what their name was, no idea. And this, like, some people it was a, it went on for a year until somebody said so, said their name socially, and it was like that's how small town Bushwick was when I, you know, when I first got it. And obviously, that's, I wasn't the first one out here or anything. That's like funny. That. Yeah, no, Roberta's. I mean, I have to give these guys credit for for sort of expanding what mm-hmm. you know was what seemed on paper at the time they opened this place as being a completely quixotic mission of what this was to be in this part of town, and and then going for it full on. But so you've been open less than a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a bit over dinner. The, has the Times reviewed you? Has not. No. Not yet. They haven't. No, they haven't. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Still holding out hope, though. But Saitsema wrote a piece for Eater, because I had Ryan Sutton here last week. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned to him, he, he, I don't think he's been out to see you yet. But Robert wrote that piece, and that was kind of a good catalyst for business, the Eater piece. Yeah, that was a very welcomed review, for sure. Um, he, he loved it. Lo- super positive. He had, yeah, he had a lot of great kind words to say about us. Yeah, I remember. I think before I ate dinner, I like looked at that review, saw the pictures of these stuff. And mm-hmm. said, yeah. And I know I've known Robert forever. I used to live in the West Village before mm-hmm. I moved to Lower East Side. He was one of my neighbors. I'd see him on the street. And of course, he's been, he was the village voice forever mm-hmm. as the sort of far-flung outer borough food mm-hmm. critic for places that no one would ever hurt you think of going. But he nailed it. I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's really, really great. It's got a great feel to it. Big open room, great sight lines, really good wine list. Of course, I love the fact that you're there because, you know, Service is something in Brooklyn that always kind of has me scratching my head. There is this sort of new generation, old generation. I'd like yeah. for is to be the service here. It's just kind of like a, an afterthought. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, eh, whatever. Service is important, and I do feel a lot yeah. of places don't, they don't. You know, it's not make it happen. Yeah, it's, it's really almost important. on purpose. We used to call it the hipster straight arm, like the Heisman <laughs> Trophy, like mm-hmm. just like F you. Like yeah. we don't get it. was almost on purpose to be kind of like rude and casual. Because that's those that's that's that generation's idea. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was always the hospitality business for a reason. Sure. And you guys have that down, which is kind of an anomaly out in this neck of the woods. And the food's just killer. Thank you. No, it's really, really something. What's the address? So Faro F A R O is the restaurant. Yeah. The address? 436 Jefferson Street. Literally around the corner from the Jefferson yes. L train stop. Yep, you can see um, it from the stop. You can see it from the stop. It's super. Just a great place. So not even a year in, and you're busy. You're doing, when I talked to you, it was November, and you said, Mike, like the next three weekends through up to Christmas, I have no tables on Friday and Saturday, mm-hmm. and I'm sold out. That's great. Yeah, it's... it's weird. Nice to see the baby grow like that. Yeah, I mean, that's Not even too. a year. Us too. It's um, it, it's really remarkable to see where we are now. When we met all those years ago, it was always a dream for us to open up our own restaurant. Yeah. And to actually be doing it in New York City is, you know, and it's, it's, a leap like, of faith, it's crazy. Man. It's a leap of faith. I mean, it you is. can open and they don't come. You can open and one critic shits on you and you're yeah. sitting around going, oh, my God, we have three reservations tonight. Are we going to get any walk-ins? And <laughs> fighting about money and worrying about all. and But when that doesn't happen, that's mm-hmm. great. So congratulations, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Restaurant Faro, Jefferson Stop, um, Bushwick, Brooklyn. So worth the trip. Thank you. So it's rare that I'm going to say that about this neck of the woods. Congratulations, guys. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. I'm sure it will be. Likewise. And I'll Merry see Christmas. you for dinner at some time, I'm sure, between now and spring. Wait. Because I'm sure your restaurant's great in the summer, but there's something about that stove and that food and cold weather that's going to make me want to slip over there after a, maybe a Thursday show in January, February. Come Absolutely. On Thanks so much. <laughs> Folks, Merry Christmas. We're taking the next two weeks off at Heritage Radio. Happy New Year to everybody. Be well. We'll see you in 2016. Whoa. Whoa.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 